Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I am Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. Oh, bring in the energy. <laughs> okay. As a reminder, Act 2 is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter of which this podcast is just one of our many initiatives. So thank you for joining us here. Guess where else you could join us? Where? Patreon. <laughs> our Patreon is now live at patreon.com slash act two writers. Um, Josh, I actually told my manager yesterday, hey, we have a Patreon. Cause she goes, your podcast isn't making you any money. Cause she's my manager, <laughs> right? And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I was like, but we did start a Patreon. And she goes, why would people want to pay for content that they can get for free? Like, Tasha, you're an idiot. Wow. <laughs> I was like, well, Jesus Christ. Well, the podcast remains free, <laughs> of course. But our Patreon does offer really cool new things and bonus content. For example, Josh and I are breaking a spec idea from scratch. It's very messy because that's how the creative process is. But we are recording the whole thing. It's like this really terrible reality TV show for writer nerds, basically. We also will be doing <laughs> live Q&As with our Patreon subscribers, which is really cool, where writers can kind of come to those and pitch their ideas or bring up a problem they're having in their writing or even in, in your career. And we can brainstorm those ideas. We can give feedback in a live Q&A. While you were talking, I was thinking about our text messaging yesterday and... There was some lost in translation where I thought you were killing the podcast. And we were like, yeah. I was like, wait, I, wait, wait, what? And then and we're, I was like, are we done now? And, and then and then there was back and forth. I was like, I don't want to be done. You're like, I don't want to be done either. <laughs> and now I know what it was from. It was from that one, one L from, conversation. It's from one L. Get her back I on the it. podcast. <laughs> I have to talk to her. No, we will never, we will never stop unless... Well, I don't think ever, because even if my mom is just like our one listener, yeah. we'd be like, still, we'd be doing this for ourselves. Here's what I think is very important to know about, I think, both you and I, Tasha, if people don't know this, and I'm just saying this, I think you and I are both, I don't want to say stubborn, but this is, it's. I think it's one of those things where I know you are, you're a very hard worker, and I think we share a similar mentality of like, we are going to go until... There is no possible way to go any longer. Yes. And I don't think that's just for a podcast. I think that's, it <laughs> might life. translate to all life things. I think it does. It's a, it's a problem, but also a gift. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> um, yeah. So head on over to our Act 2 Patreon. We have a $5 option, a $10 option, and of course, a free option. And you can also DM us still. You can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com, all spelled out, or on our Instagram and Twitter at act2writers. And hey, look, you know, I want to bring back threads. We're also at threads. Oh, Jesus. Act two writers. I need something else, okay? Uh-huh. I'm also there. I'm Story Thursday on Instagram and Tasha 3.0 on Twitter. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Josh Hallman on Instagram. And thank you to everyone who has come over to Patreon. And it is, you know what it is, it's like we're, we are doing more things over there and we're trying to build things out. We're trying to scale out. I have this this dream where we lead to a live show and we we just, there's, there's like manpower. There's all these things. That's sort of why, you know, if someone's like, why am I paying for this? Like, that's it. You're, you're helping out in a, in a way you can't even understand. So thank you. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Should we go into uh, This Week in Writing? Yes. 
this? We can write in. I watched eight Harry Potter films over the course of three days. Yes! I wasn't really feeling great. I was under the weather. I needed something to do. And I was with my daughter and we were watching. We just watched it. We got through all of them. And I have some thoughts. I'm not going to do a complete deep dive into Harry Potter, which I would happily do, by the way. But <sighs> We I'm need not... a whole episode about this. Oh, my god! Here's what was really interesting about the Harry Potter films. As I got to, like, six, I was like, these sort of resemble Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> that is the most Joshian thing to say <laughs> that I have ever heard. Okay. So... There's the the setup there. There's obviously this problem that, oh, okay, there's like a half-blood prince or there's there's always like the beginning, there's the setup of it's that it's leading to some kind of answer or they're looking for the chamber of secrets or, the, you know, they're always, it's always leading to something very similar to, hey, we need to stop like a, a nuclear bomb. So it, it's always leading to something. The gang gets together and then there's new magic that's introduced that kind of plays out throughout like the second act which are the equivalent to like these gadgets that are in Mission Impossible. There was okay. this one thing where they were listening to somebody in Harry Potter. They dropped this ear from like the third story of something and the ears listening. And there's always like this introduction into the world of these new kind of what I would call, yeah, little gadget, these little magical elements. And then the movie kind of plays out. There's a subplot, but it's always leading to the like finding of the Chamber of Secrets. Something yeah. like that. I, my point being is I felt like I was like, oh, this is like, the team gets together. The team has to solve a problem. The team uses gadgets to do this. And yeah. then there's 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 kind of problems along the way. So all, yeah. all I'm saying, all I'm saying, that might not have made as much sense in my brain it as it did. It made perfect sense. Yeah. That's super yeah. interesting. I didn't think this, like, it wasn't as complex as I thought. But the world building in Harry Potter is, like, second to none. It's amazing. Incredible. It's the best. So this brings me to my one last Harry Potter thing. If you are a writer... And you're you're building some world. I would highly suggest. Just I'm sure everyone's done this, but Harry freaking Potter. It's the little things. Like you're just walking through the hall of Hogwarts, and snow is just kind of there. For, yeah. They don't even like call attention to it. It's just snowing. No. Yeah. It's just in, in like the corner or it's the best. Some, it's it's just it's so subtle and so perfect. It's the best. It is such a good example of how to use worlds if you're world building as well, like you're saying, because I don't think this is my philosophy and it clearly works because it's Harry Potter's philosophy as well, that <laughs> if you shine a light on the world, that doesn't make it more exciting. It actually makes it feel cheaper, makes it feel more unrealistic. Weirdly, it just does. So when it's in the background, when it's every day for the people who live in this world, then it feels more real. We all have, like, that's one thing about Harry Potter that I think, like, everyone who's a fan of it shares is this feeling like maybe it's real. It feels so tangible yeah. that, like, we all talk about, like, oh, when are we going to get our letter? It's just like this, it's all this joke that we all share because it feels so real. And it feels so real because people walk through snow inside a building and it doesn't phase them because that's just every day for them. And that, I think, is the better world building. Can I ask you a writing question about this? Please. Can we just make this a Harry Potter episode? <laughs> so in execution, as someone who is great at world building, do you write that? Do you write this as like almost a passive thing? For instance, Harry walks through the hallway, snow is 
falling like is is there any like how do you write that do you call attention to it or is it just something that's kind of passive in the description i think it's passive in the description you want it to feel like it feels in the in the and i think even in reading it you're like wait wait, wait there's snow in here like that's sure. so cool that it's just like it's just a thing it's just like the way that you would describe any room in a mission impossible movie that's in our real world like there's just snow and i think that's, that's part of the cool cool part of the read that's the other thing like that's the perfect correlation when you walk into a room in mission impossible there's this crazy tech that's not yeah. called to attend you just it's just that's there. true yeah okay wow mission impossible harry potter i'm so closer, into it <laughs> closer than we think <laughs> all right i i have a spec check yes spec check. spec check so i was talking to my goal buddy steve desmond and i said man steve i'm having so much trouble finishing this damn spec and i don't know why and he's like well tasha remember that time you finished your short story because you blocked out an entire day to do it Find a day in your calendar right now as we're talking where you can block out time to write your screenplay. Don't schedule any meetings to you. That is a meeting on your calendar. And so I did. And it was tough. I like <laughs> uh, my assistant, Kevin, kept like trying to schedule things in this block. And I'd be like, no, I have something. He's like, but you don't. It doesn't. It's not in the calendar. It's like, but it is. It's just a block of empty time. I need to work on my script. And so I did. And then I like didn't write anything. Josh, I didn't write anything. I was just texting you about how much I hated it. That's that's <laughs> how I used that block of time. <laughs> I, I was so bored in writing it. And this is like a pattern with me. I feel like I I get really excited initially. And then I find just boredom after oh. a while. And like I and the problem for this particular screenplay is I love moments of it. They're like, I love the first act I actually really, really like. Um, it can be better and better finessed, but like overall, like that story really excites me. But once we hit act two and then where it's building to act three is so boring to me, I don't care about it. Mm. And if I don't care about it, nobody's going to care about it. And so I feel like something inherently has to change about the story I am telling for me to get excited about it again. So I'm in this crazy place where I don't know, should I abandon it entirely? Because I have a lot of stuff written. Or do I try and repurpose it to to, to get me excited, like to go back to the heart of what I loved about it and really do some digging um, and try and power through. Because another problem I have is like you and I came up with an idea that I wanted to write that got me really excited. I think we were both excited about it because we just started texting about it. Yeah. And I'm like, do I just pivot and do that? But then is that just another danger trap because I'll pivot and do that and then I'll get bored with that. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And just like uh, copy paste this problem. So I don't know. This is where I'm at. I, if you have advice, I'll take it. But I, I, I don't know. First of all, I think this is probably one of the most common problems with writing specs. What you're explaining is like the excitement... And then the notes happen, and then you're like, oh, man, I have other stuff going on. Why am I going to put all of my focus here? This seems like yeah. a lost cause. I think what you have to do, and we might have to do this even in like a writer's group, is okay. we have one more conversation about the spec, and then we talk about it, talk about all the things that you love about it, talk about where it could go, yeah. and then and then it's it's like doing a gut check, sitting on that for 24 hours saying, Okay, do I want to do I want to put effort into this or 
do I want to just kind of shelve this for now and come back to it? I love that idea. I will say, I Uh think it's a, I know the script I think is a great idea. So it's not something you get rid of forever. It's just something that is put off to the side. Okay. All right. I'd be super down to like bring the script back and use it not as like a note session, but as a brainstorm session for how to, this is what I love about it. How do we make it that movie? That's cool. We could even do, I mean, listen, I know you clearly have another goal buddy, but we could even do a goal buddy session about it and just talk it through. Thank you, Josh. I love you. Hey, Steve Desmond. (laughs) (laughs) I have one more this week in writing. Okay. This was a tweet. The tweet reads, what do you do when you have to make a decision that you know in your gut is best for your career, but it feels extremely scary? Mm. Any advice on getting over that fear of the unknown? You said that to me. I sent that to you because I feel this. I feel this tweet so hard because I've had so many moments in my career where I was terrified. And I'd be curious what you do in these situations. I don't know. Like, I actually feel like you don't get terrified. That just may be this persona you put out. But I feel like you're never scared of any decision. Uh, for me, <laughs> I I freak out privately. <laughs> um, I usually will go have dinner with my my friend my best friend who is extremely rational and practical so she will give me like an emotionless answer of what I could do and that helps me like filter out because I'm very emotional when it comes to these like fear points in career decisions and so if I have someone spitting back to me like pitching back to me the scenario without the emotions in it that becomes very helpful Um, I also now have Paul my husband who I can go to and like talk things through with and that's very helpful to just have someone who's willing to listen to you for like an hour or however long it takes for you to just spill out everything that you feel about this scenario. And I usually do a pros and a cons and all of that. And then they can help walk you through the reality of the situation. Again, shedding the emotions of it and getting to the heart of what's good and bad for you. Um, and that's what I tend to do. And I also find, as the last thing I'll say about it, is that if something scares me, it's usually the thing I need to do because I'm scared of it because it's completely uncomfortable to me. It's a growing opportunity. It's something that um, it's completely outside of my comfort zone. And that's where I will grow and become better. So I usually gravitate towards the things that scare me, even though they fucking scare me. I love it. Yeah. I'm getting like scared now, just anxious <laughs> now, just thinking about these moments in my life. <laughs> I, uh, I I mean, listen, I think it's awesome when stuff like this happens where you're like, oh, man, something's about to freak me out. That usually hurt. Those are the best things. You just got to dive in and see what happens. Do you just do it? Do you just like you're like, oh, I'm scared. I'm going to dive in. Like there's no there's no like <laughs> like me, like <laughs> elongated thought process. You're just like, oh, fear. Yeah. Dive. <laughs> uh, Well, I listen. I like this that like going back to the tweet, there's a little bit of a gut check of being like, am I going to die doing this? And if the answer is no, it's like, let's go buckle up because why not? I tend to say yes to a lot of things or at least try to do things. And I test it out for myself. Yeah. You got to you just got to test the water. Do you always feel rewarded afterwards? Kind of no matter what happens or have you have you done this and been like, fuck, I regret everything. I've done things where I've been like, why did I commit to this? 
but I committed to it, so I'm going to see it through. But more yeah. times than not, it's always that learning experience. And you, I'm like, man, it's so cheesy, but you do come away with so much more knowledge when you do these kind of things that yeah. are so far out of your comfort zone. And you're like, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's just see what happens. I know I can do this. I'm yeah. going to figure this out. Let's go. Yeah. You just figure it out. That's You figure it out. That's the beauty of just being a person. You just figure stuff out. So jump in and do it. I agree. I love it. In some ways, it's it's related to our topic, I feel like. <laughs> to transition. What a perfect transition. <laughs> Today, we are talking about a really interesting list of filmmaking tips we found from filmschoolrejects.com. Mm-hmm. And these are writing tips, but just general filmmaking tips that come from James Mangold, who wrote and directed movies like Logan, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Girl Interrupted, Kate and Leopold, one of the greatest rom-coms, oh. Walk the Line, like all over the spectrum. Lots of dramatic stuff, which I think is cool because then when this drama or this genre stuff came up, like Logan and Indiana Jones, he kind of brought his drama chops with him, which is cool. Um so yeah, let's get into it. Writing writing tips, filmmaking tips from James Mangold. Let's get into it. Um, I'm going to go first. Yeah, do it. Okay. <laughs> um, write for blind people is sort of the first thing that he says. He, there was an interview from 1997 where he said to a bunch of students, write as if they were describing a movie to a blind person. And can I, would you have patience enough to have me just read this little, this little interview that he did? This the little paragraph, Joshua? Yeah, because I feel like this is the best, best it's advice. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The job of the screenplay is to get the movie made. A producer with money in his pocket needs to say, I want to make this movie. An actor needs to read this script and say, I want to be in this movie. If the script doesn't read well and excite these people it'll never become a movie. So don't write Catherine walks from left to right. Who cares if she's walking from left to right? What's important is that you see the screen door slamming and feel the wind blowing her skirt, so write it. It won't be a head and shoulder shot of that actress crossing the porch if the way her dress blows is something that sees truly evocative and relevant to the story. I rarely refer to a lens or a tracking shot in my scripts. I just write what I want the audience to see. If I was describing something to my grandmother and she couldn't see, I wouldn't say, he's walking down the hall, he looks really powerful. To me, that's obviously a low tracking shot. It's also a much more enticing invitation for an actor and director. Okay, write for blind people, Josh. What do you think about that? I love it. There's like... The, the most important thing I felt was like the first sentence, and this really resonated, was the job of the screenplay is to get the movie made. Yeah. I feel yeah. like that's a really important thing, and it's something I have to remind myself about, and it's something we've talked about. For instance, not to turn this on me, but when we were talking about like the spec, the pilot that I've been writing, and it's I've been resisting things because... I, what's the hook? What's the hook? Like I've been resisting certain things just to kind of make things my own way. Whereas I know there's a better way to do it that would make the script more appealing on a wider mm. scale. And mm. I guess I read that as don't be don't be dumb. Just write for like 
don't be dumb. Don't be dumb. No, be aware of the industry and what we're in and the things that people want to read. And if you're writing a, you're not going to, yeah, I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of going off on a little tangent, but I just felt like that's, that's a bit of an important uh, statement to be made. Just get the movie made. No, I agree. And I feel like people at James Mangold's level, like I feel like Tony Gilroy, I've heard a lot of interviews with him about this as well. They're, they're really good writers that manage to be auteurs in a way like their their work is really solid it's really good um but it doesn't then mean they sacrifice the marketing aspect of things right and yeah i think what's interesting about like the writing part of write for blind people like to me the key phrase was i write what i want the audience to see Mm -hmm. and you may think, well, he's a director, right? He can do that. He's going to direct it. But like he says in that little paragraph, I don't write about tracking shots or whatever the shot that I know I'm going to use. I don't write that. I write what the audience is going to like feel and see in that moment. And I think that's super key because screenplays used to be a blueprint. There are quotes all over the interweb of very um, prolific, famous screenwriters from back in the day. We're talking 40s, 50s, 60s, um, even 70s who, who talk about screenplays being a blueprint for getting a movie made and that's not what we're talking about i mean he says that up front but that's not what he means what he Mm -hmm. means is that now this the way that this hollywood system is there's so many there's a there's like so much content out there there are so many more writers than there used to be it's not just like the studio writers at the studio writing like every joe schmo is writing scripts and trying to sell them so a there's just more competition out there and you have to sort of set yourself apart from them but also there's a lot more ways for movies to get made than there used to be and so this aspect of really exciting the reader whether it's going to be the actor you're attaching or the producer or the financier who's going to invest money and time into it you have to write like a really good novel (laughs) that's almost how it feels like it has to read less like a blueprint which is what they're still teaching in schools which i don't understand and more with voice more like you would write prose and that's not to say you're writing long swaths of action description that's where writing a screenplay and learning the art of screenplay writing is going to be different i came up with in prose i came up thinking i was going to write novels and short stories for the rest of my life and when i started writing screenplays it was a huge learning curve for me that was one of those things it was like a fear moment and i still had to just push through because yeah. i didn't think i was going to figure it out it was so different it was so hard they were working all these muscles that i did not have because i was writing prose for so long but i figured it out and now here i am writing screenplay so it is a learning process but figuring out this careful balance of using your voice but also being a blueprint for a movie is the art of screenwriting and the more you read screenplays that are good for movies that you love um, the more you're gonna understand where this balance lies that's beautiful. I rambled. No, not at all. Should we move on? Let's go. Number two, tailor films to actors. So I'm just going to read a little blurb. I'm not going to go as in depth as you just did, but something that he says is, what I would suggest is to tailor your early projects around talent, amazing talent you know, meaning if you have a friend who is an incredible singer or songwriter and has a kind of very unique personality, write a movie about them as if they were a character you know. And he was saying that as advice he gives to younger filmmakers if he goes to film school. What do you think about this? I have been told this from the beginning and I never do it. And so it's something I am now trying to force myself to do a bit more. Not only from a creative standpoint, but like just a marketing standpoint, I think it is super great to think about. From a writing perspective. From a, Yeah, from a writing perspective of like, 
Yeah, creating characters that you can see someone be like a Ryan Reynolds or a Robert De Niro. You can see them being in that movie. I think can help you make those characters richer, make them feel more real because you have someone clearly in your head for that movie. So like from a creative standpoint, that that can be helpful. I think from a marketing standpoint, it can be helpful because you are then sending producers and studios and actors a script that conjures for them a movie star. (laughs) So then they know that a movie, they can plop a movie star down into this movie and, and try to sell it. But I also think you can go, again, this is where reading a lot of screenplays becomes very helpful because you can go too far the other way where your hero just sounds exactly like Ryan Reynolds, right? And what if Ryan Reynolds doesn't want to do this movie? Now you have a script that sounds like Ryan Reynolds that you now have to rewrite because no actor wants to sign onto a project where they're just going to basically play Ryan Reynolds. So I think what he says in there is key that like he talks about how Scorsese wrote movies that he would tailor to his friend's assets. So Robert De Niro's assets, like what is he good at in, in his act? Where's his sweet spot when he acts? And then write a movie that will allow that sweet spot to really sing and show off. Um, so that doesn't mean that the scripts for those movies were literally in the voice of Robert De Niro because he didn't want to do it. He was fucked. It meant scenarios. It meant moments, emotions, interactions with other characters that he could really see Robert De Niro knocking out of the park. And I think that's where I need to... I I haven't done this. I've never done this. I've just like gone with my idea. Yeah. And only recently have started thinking about it because I've had different actors being like, oh, like this this writing is good. I was like, oh, really? Like, could I I write a movie for you? Like, what what would that even look like? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and but... What's interesting is when I have thought about it, and I've not written a full screenplay thinking about an actor in particular, but when I have done a little bit of it, it does like course correct you because you're like, oh, like this actor would never do that. They would do this. And that's super helpful. It suddenly starts guiding you in your screenplay, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I've only written one thing, which was a spec, and then the actor came onto the movie and then we were working together and we were changing the script around. And then I started to write for him. And it was very helpful, but very mm. interesting. And it does, then you kind of like write a scene in that person's, that voice. And then you have to just do the entire movie that way because it's just, but so that was an interesting thing. But I did want to say, I used to, you know, I, I'm sure you got this where if you'd write something, you would talk to a producer or someone, they'd be like, who do you see in this movie? Yeah. Like who And, that question used to and probably still frustrates me a little bit and kind of annoys me because sometimes I think it's a cop out question. Like, yeah. who did you see in it? Like, this is, you know, usually my response that I don't My response say. is, I'm not the fucking casting director. I don't know. You pick. It's a good story. Have <laughs> so you said like, that? <laughs> in my head. <laughs> but I do understand the question. It is a frustrating question, but I do understand it from a who do you see in this? Because that and that can help me see it. And then once they like kind of get on board with this idea of who this yeah. actor could be, it's either a good thing or a bad thing, but it could be a great thing because then you're just full steam ahead. Oh my God, this is the Ryan Gosling movie. Yeah. He has to do this movie. I think this is a place I need to mature and grow a bit more. I, <laughs> I, I, me too. <laughs> I, I think for sure. Like it's, I think I, I need to shed my sort of, my stubborn sort of new writer part of me here. Yeah. It's interesting because when I pitch, 
I always have actor references of who I imagine because a pitch, it needs to be visual. You need to, the people you're pitching to need to imagine a star in this role. But in a pitch, because of just like the nature of writing a pitch, it's so different than a screenplay where you're actually, you know, writing characters behaving in a certain way and going across the room in a certain way. All of the stuff that comes with the details of screenwriting versus a pitch. Like I don't shift my storytelling in a pitch because of the actor I choose. I just like, oh yeah, like I could see Brad Pitt in this role or oh, I could see Chris Hemsworth in this role. So I'm just going to like plop them, their picture in there. But it doesn't affect my storytelling. It would, I think, if I go to the script and start doing yeah. it. Yeah, I don't know. I need to take that mentality I use for pitches and bring it in here. I think where I've resisted it is this problem of, well, if I write this movie for Ryan Reynolds and he doesn't want to do it, then I'm fucked. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's... I think it's just specificity of person. I think. Can, I, of, can I just say one more? This is this might be a little side tangent vent about this. As someone who has a wife who is a casting director, I have mm-hmm. asked her. Uh, okay, so let's just say, let's say you're pitching something, and you'd be like, imagine Timothy Chalamet. You're like the thing is, he's like zero point one percent chance he's available or can be. It's, that will come on to this this movie, right? So I've been in scenarios where I've talked to my wife and I've been like, who's like the next person coming up that are in mm-hmm. these upcoming movies that are going to blow up? And she'll tell me, and then I will use those actors in a pitch or if I'm talking to somebody and no one knows who those actors are. And it's oh, one of those things where it's like, but wait, that person's on the up and up. Like it, But it's weird because you have to use a known commodity. You just have to. Yeah. Even though they're not going to do the movie, probably. Yes, when you pitch, for sure. Oh, it's just so frustrating. Yeah. But I think when you write, you can use those people. I've, I've done that before. I've talked to people, and I've said who I thought was in, like, oh, who do you picture in this? And I'm like, you know, Henry Golding. That's a very bad example because people know who he is. But at a time, people didn't know who he was, you know? And, yeah. and so it's, it's you, gotta, you just have to say who people know. You just be like, yeah. who's in Euphoria? Use that person. Okay. Right. Anyway. Okay. That's my vent. It's done. Cool. I love it. It's a, it's a complicated one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't take the pros for granted. I love this one. So Mengold in a, I guess a 2007 interview with, on Charlie Rose mm-hmm. talks about his experience on 310 to Yuma where he had Russell Crowe and he had Christian Bale and he just gets into a, a, it's a pretty fun story. Check out the the link that we're going to put in the post. Um, but how their, their processes are just very different. And he gets into how a professional actor is someone who you think like they're going to be super rigid. Like this is my process and don't fuck with it. But yeah. really like if they're professional and they're really good at getting into the heart of who their character is, you can throw curveballs at them and they will adapt um, because they know the character so well. And I've definitely found that in my own stuff with with actors who, um, you know, come on for, for animation, voice actors, uh, will brainstorm stuff the character might say or do in that given situation. It's not just like stick to the script or stick to their version or whatever. And I think that's very interesting. I think practically for screenwriting, I guess it's not, this is not really screenwriting, it's more of a production directing thing. But I think it's great to sort of not be, and this is something I had to I had to face talking about again, that fear that you just get over is when an actor comes in and it's a known actor, it's someone mm-hmm. that you really respect, you sort of feel like, oh, I'm gonna step back and I'll let you do your thing. 
just you, you just be you because I hired you to be this amazing person that you are. But guess what? Even actors need directing. <laughs> they need yeah. even the best actors need someone to talk about their character with and you need to know your characters inside and out. You need to know the scenarios inside and out. I've definitely had actors come in and be like, why is he saying this? And you have to know why he's saying that or <laughs> realize you don't know why he's saying that. So let's talk about what he would say instead. <laughs> Make um, it so up. These are all, <laughs> yes, right. So these are all things like I think that he's kind of saying in this part, which is, again, more filmmaking, production, directing. But um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. The next one. Treat child actors the same as any other actors. This is obviously something that I feel like is more geared towards being a director, but it's worth talking about. And he references his time working on Logan and how there was a new 11-year-old girl who was up and coming. And she was this relatively you know, unknown actress. She comes in and he uh, Mangold basically just, I think he kind of goes into talking about treating the child actor the sim- same way you treat an adult actor, obviously. Not, not on, like you're not like swearing at this young, young child, but <laughs> it's just giving the same respect and speaking to them on an emotional level because I think that uh, that would resonate with a child in ways that I think an adult might not really quite understand. Kids are freaking smart. Yeah. But here's how I'm going to correlate this to writing, Tasha. Get it. I was thinking about writing kids in mm. scripts, which can be really difficult to do. Even as someone who has a kid, it can be difficult to do. Because you don't know how smart a child could be and you don't know their background, you know, this, all these, like, there's all these elements. And I tend to err on the side of, like, writing the child as very smart because I feel Mm -hmm. like that's probably more realistic than if you're Mm. writing, like, a 10-year-old who's just kind of, like, oblivious to the world. Right. Treat your characters the same way you treat them as adults. Yeah. Interesting. characters. Have you worked with child actors? Yes, very minimally. Um, did you did you leave the room and just say figure it out yourself? <laughs> Be better. <laughs> that was your take. <laughs> My experience so far has been they're all so sweet and so excited to be there, and they just have like such a fun time. It's like a game to them, which is which is really cute. And same exactly what James Mangold said, which is that they respond to emotion. So like you just say, you're really sad here because your best friend is in danger and you want to try and save them, but you can't. And so they kind of funnel that. And then you just sort of make adjustments to that as you go. Yeah. I mean, you know me and and kids. I have none. (laughs) I don't want them. (laughs) I only love Josh's child. Oh. Paul's making you say that, but anyway, moving on. I love Amelia. Okay. <laughs> Work with people who know more than you. I love this one. Yeah, me so, too. So in a 2007 interview, he talked about how it's important to work with people who are experienced in a certain aspect of, of whatever your film is about. You know, the best collaborators for your project are going to be people who are familiar with that subject matter or that genre or the kind of film production you're going to be doing. So I like this small story tangent um, that illustrates this idea. When I worked at Universal, we were making a movie with a first time feature director and he had done commercials and I think was considered kind of a genius in the commercial world. 
And so he came in with a certain swagger, a certain confidence, which felt rightly so. But once it came to hiring his crew and working with them on set, it became quickly clear that that confidence was actually ego. Mm. And Universal being Universal, and this was a big budget movie, was able to hire some really great people to be on his team. Some Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning people from production designers, cinematographers, editors, etc. Just this really stellar out-of-the-world team. But when my boss visited set, she found that he wasn't listening to any of them. I mean, first-time director and you're not listening to an Oscar-winning creative team is like very difficult to fathom, but that's what this guy was doing. And the production very much suffered for it. Like they weren't making their days. The story wasn't being told in the best possible way because he was new to this. And I think he was maybe, if I could project, too afraid to say he didn't know something, Um, particularly maybe in the face of people who were more experienced than him that maybe intimidated him and he didn't want to feel intimidated or seem intimidated. And so he pretended like he knew more than he did. I'm all guessing. I just know how I how I've been when I'm in these like scenarios where it's like hitting on my ego. Mm-hmm. But something I love about animation is how collaborative it is, and I think collaborative it is, and I think it's teaching me to be a much better writer and creative person in general be- because of that. Like for example, I was just in a meeting yesterday where we were brainstorming this scene that I didn't think worked, and the yep. director wanted to know why, and so I had to articulate what my original vision for the scene was, hear why he didn't think it was working, and then we needed to start pitching ideas for for how to fix that problem. And in real time, we got to talk it through. Everyone got to pitch ideas. Didn't matter if, who you were in that room. If you had an idea, let's hear it. And what ended up happening was the new idea is not just my idea. It's everyone's idea kind of fused into one. And I think that's a lesson that you're constantly learning when you work on TV because there's never a solo idea. Like when uh, Witcher Blood Origin came out, I remember being like, oh, like that's that's my idea. Like I did that. And then I'm thinking that's actually bullshit because even if technically cut and paste, like that was my pitch, that probably came out of like 30 minutes to an hour of discussion that was already happening that even helped me like come up with that idea to begin with. So filmmaking is collaborative. It just is. That's honestly what's so fun about it. Josh and I are always talking about like how collaboration excites us. And we all know we have egos of our own. So <laughs> so if we yeah. could do it, anyone could do it. No, so I for think sure. that what this is, is, like surround yourselves with brilliant people. Don't be afraid of it. I know when I first started show writing Tomb Reader, I was so afraid that everyone was more experienced than I was and they were going to overshadow me and I knew that I'm a very shy person by nature and I was afraid I was going to let them all sort of control the show and I was going to be too afraid to speak up and I think a this is a skill you need to work actively on it's something I had to actively work on every time I was in a meeting where I had to learn to be brave and speak up and not be afraid to look stupid that was a huge one I think if you're afraid to look stupid you're going to stagnate immediately I had to ask stupid questions because I just didn't know the answers to them as a first-time showrunner. And then I think, B, if your vision is strong enough, if you know this world and you know these characters inside and out, I think you can let go of having so much creative control. Because if someone more experienced than you has a bad idea, 
you know it's a bad idea. You know that like, mm, that's interesting, but I'm not going to go with that because I don't think it is. But if someone has a good idea, that's only going to bolster your vision and make it better. Because again, you you know what it's going to be and they're just going to service that vision. So um, I love this topic. I feel like I could be a whole topic <laughs> I do too. episode on just this topic. I Listen, that's perfectly said. I The only thing I would, I'm just adding into this because I agree with everything you said, but the I think the people that I have been around who are like the best at what they do are the people who are always open to any idea and usually do surround themselves with really amazing people where you're like, mm -hmm. holy cow, that writer's working with that producer, that director is attached and you have this person and, they, and they're always listening to other people and maybe not taking the idea, but at least actually thinking about what the person said and, oh, that, you know, that's interesting and kind of playing out how it works and you said it perfectly, but yeah, the that's that's I think more times than not, like the people yeah. who are great at something are always surrounded by great people. I agree, and I think if your instinct is to have less brilliant people around you because you're you're afraid of your vision or you're you're afraid of being challenged or whatever that fear is, if you if you feel that instinct coming up, know that that is coming from your place of fear, and everything will actually be better if you go the opposite. Damn. <laughs> This the theme of this entire wow. podcast is fear. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> All right. Number six, going out with a bang doesn't have to mean explosions. I'm so glad you have this one. Yeah, because he's wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love it. I love it. He's so uh Mangold, in this interview he had with The Daily Deed, talks about his time working on Logan. And Logan was an emotional bang. And basically what he said, I'm just going to read a little bit of this. He said, well, we wanted to go out with a bang. But the thing is, like I said, once cities and planets have been destroyed, you have to find and earn your bang as opposed to just get louder. He goes on to say a few other things, but I think that's really important because um, what he talks about, what they're touching on is really hitting that character moment at the end that resonates as opposed to just blowing up cities having some you know stop some ticking time bomb which mm -hmm. I, I love to do but <laughs> if you can somehow hit that emotional chord with your characters it's so much more impactful than that explosion there is mm -hmm. no question about it and this is someone who mm -hmm. writes those explosions nothing else to add I agree it's hard to do figuring out how to wrap all that stuff up because I think you want to cheat and you want to just do the big bang because that feels easier. Um, finding the emotional bang is a lot. Yeah. I, by the way, I've written things where the stakes are like, the world will end if this doesn't get solved. And multiple people have read it and been like, this just doesn't feel like the stakes are good enough here. And you're like, Whoa. okay, that's, it's, yeah. this is a character problem. Yeah. So. I think honestly, it's it's somewhat connected to the world building stuff we were talking about with Harry Potter weirdly where and like I started thinking about Superman and how like the entire city just just falls over basically in that movie and like I don't care yeah it's like holy cow you can't you can't care about an entire yeah because the emotions aren't there so sure it's similar like I don't care if you highlight snow falling down from the ceiling like that doesn't matter if there's not character stuff going on in the world that makes me care that there's even a room with snow falling in it so character 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 character, character. okay <laughs> cool
quote of the day. The way I write is very much without kind of a goal. I have something I'm interested in and then I decide I'm going to explore it. I don't know where the characters are going. I don't know what the screenplay is going to do. For me, that's the way to keep it alive. Charlie Kaufman. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Josh Hallman on Instagram. And don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Act Two Writers. And as always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Mm-hmm.